Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. Uh, my name's Ian Lewins, one of the consultants here and uh, your host this afternoon. And I'm very pleased to be joined by a very good friend of mine, Dr Mike Farker, who's a sleep consultant based in London. Um, and we're going to talk today about shift work. And why is that important to you? Why has that become important to you, Mike? So it's something that I started thinking about um, pretty much when I became a consultant. So I've always had an interest in sleep, and obviously that's why I ended up as a sleep consultant. And I think certainly when we were at Charles, and even more so today, I think it's impossible to train without realising the consequences that shift work has on how we function. Um, I was very used all the way through my training to the people, uh, you know, the horror stories of people finishing a night shift and then ending up in the middle of a roundabout or yeah. falling asleep behind the wheel of a car and nearly crashing and all the rest of it. Um, and just at the time I CCT'd, um, there was a fairly high-profile case in Scotland of a, a house officer who had finished her first set of nights uh, and crashed and died driving home. Yeah. So it kind of crystallised at that point. So the point where I was becoming a consultant, where I was going to have the ability to do things uh, a bit more than I'd had before, and it matched up with the interests I had in sleep. So I decided that I really wanted to do a piece of work to try and emphasise the importance of sleep and fatigue when we're working shifts around the clock. Um, I think it's important for lots of reasons. I said the reason I wanted to do it to begin with is because I think we don't give people the education and the information and the strategies to cope with the fact that what we ask ourselves to do to provide healthcare is completely unphysiological. Um, We are evolved to be awake in the daytime and asleep at nighttime. Hospitals expect us to be awake, or some of us to be awake, 24 hours a day. And at three o'clock in the morning, when every cell in your brain and body is screaming at you that you should be asleep, you know how that feels. Mm. We all know how that feels, but we don't get any teaching about how to cope with that. Um, and I think it's something that has an impact both on our own health uh, and something that also impacts the, the care that we provide to our patients. So the the, the tragic outcomes, the, the deaths, um, the the accidents with a more serious consequence are very much a tip of an iceberg um, and it was something that I thought we could be better about. Mm. I can't stop people working night shifts so we have no. to do that. So yeah. it's all about mitigating consequences more than anything else and the way that we did that to begin with was by campaigning, quite hard to begin with but it's got easier over the years, to build this into teaching. Um, so everybody goes through induction yeah. Everybody in the course of their career gets told, you know, a hundred times how to wash their hands and where the fire uh, mm. kits are and all the rest of it. But we spend very little time in induction actually talking about ourselves and how to look after ourselves. So it was a bit difficult to get it in at the beginning, but I persevered and we got it in. Um, and what we found almost immediately was that the feedback was phenomenally positive. Mm. And it wasn't that we'd suddenly transformed everybody's lives and suddenly that you know, night shifts were 10 time, million times better for them. What they said was, this is the first time in our careers we have had teaching or training that is about us and is about mm. trying to help us cope better with what we are asked to do just as part of the job. Um, and I think that's actually a really important point about the, the value of all of this type of work. I think it's now beginning to tie into an awful... Uh, uh, a much bigger, rather, piece of work around about the importance of staff well-being mm. to be able to deliver care. But this was the beginning of that, uh, certainly in our hospital. Um, what we do is is not particularly uh, rocket science. I spend a bit of time 
educating them a little bit about the very basics of sleep physiology because I think if you understand the, the really simple mm. basics about sleep and how our brains and bodies work for sleep, you know, understanding things like your body clock, your circadian drive, uh, why three o'clock in the morning is an unphysiological time to be sticking central lines into a neonate. Um, and then we spent a bit of time thinking about how to improve their core sleep. So we know that most adults in this country are cheating themselves out of sleep. Yeah. We all find lots of reasons yeah. why we think we've got more important things to do than go to bed at the right time. So I spent a bit of time talking about that and how to try and improve the quality of the sleep they get every night of their lives, not just uh, when they're working shifts. And a lot of that is really simple, basic stuff. You know, have you got a comfortable bed? Are you wired to your iPhone before mm. you fall asleep? Have you been drinking coffee and beer right up until bedtime? It's really simple, basic stuff, but it's trying to get the importance of why it matters across. Um, and that meets with a mixed reception mm. um, uh, in terms of how much people want to do that. And then what we do is try and talk them through how to work better through the mm. night, so the hints and tips that might make you work better in those circumstances. Because I think one of the things that, having just sat through one of your talks, which was fantastic, um, was it brings home, actually, it's not just you feel a bit rubbish. Mm. There are significant Absolutely. health consequences of yeah. night shift working. Yeah, so um, and there's lots of different strands to that. So there's... Uh, significant and growing body of evidence that is pretty conclusive that tells us that if you are just sleep deprived so if you are somebody like most adults in this country who gets on average an hour less sleep than you should do that affects your lifetime risk of things like diabetes um, type 2 diabetes obesity uh, heart disease uh, strokes alzheimer's disease yeah. are all probably influenced by sleep deprivation um, and when we look at shift workers we know that that becomes even more so. So there's a, uh, a really um, compelling body of evidence that tells us that working shifts at night is bad for your health. Yeah. Shift work increases your morbidity, it increases your mortality. Um, and if we don't acknowledge that, then when we're asking people to work at night, we're not really uh, living up to the responsibility of what I think an employer should do. If we are asking somebody to do something that by its very nature is uh, increasing their risks of poor health, one, we should be acknowledging that, mm. and two, we should be saying, what should we be doing to make this better? So it has a big impact on personal health in the longer term. In the short term, it comes back to that risk of uh, uh, serious harm. So when you are fatigued, and by the time that you have been awake for 16, 17, 18 hours, your reaction time is slowed to the same degree as if you're at the legal drink drive limit. Yeah. So if you finish a night shift and you've been awake for that length of time, your risk of crashing is the same as if you've had a pint of beer, a couple yeah. of glasses of wine. And most of us these days would hesitate to get behind the wheel of a car yep. if we had even a little bit of alcohol on board. But we don't think about driving when tired in the same way. But our risk of dying is the same. So again, we should be acknowledging that and trying to put things in place to reduce that. And then the third bit of it, which is equally as important, um, is that... If, you know, so thinking about reaction time being slow, so reaction time is one cognitive mm. measure. I can take almost any cognitive measure you can think of, and by the time you get to that degree of fatigue, it will be impaired. Yeah. We think less clearly when we're tired. We're slower, we're sluggish. It takes us longer to analyse situations. We handle novelty less well when we're tired. And so the unexpected, we cope with uh, less well. And all of those things are critically important. If you are three o'clock in the morning in a busy medical environment so a neonatal intensive care unit an ed an mm. operating theater 
you need to be able to make those decisions mm. quickly and competently and deal with the unexpected. And just the nature of fatigue and working when you're meant to be asleep means you're not as good at doing that. So there's an impact on patient care for this as well. Our patients are more vulnerable at night time, both in their own right, but also because we are not as good or not capable of being as good at night time as we would be in the daytime. Mm. And we should be acknowledging that as systems and putting in place strategies and supports to try and mitigate that. So I think I think the thing that always amazes me about it is that it's taken us so long, I think, and not for lack of trying, and lots of people before mm. me have tried uh, in terms of doing it, and certainly lots of people other than me uh, are doing it now. But I think we've reached a point where, again, it comes back to that idea of staff well-being is not just about being nice to us. Um, mm. It is more fundamental than that. Um, it is not possible to provide care to the standards that our patients deserve if we are not functioning at our best. Um, uh, doctors make mistakes. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I often use the analogy when teaching um, of air traffic controllers um, and you know, comparing us to the airline industry yes. is always slightly fraught. However, an air traffic controller is doing a task that they're very used to doing. It's quite a complex task in some ways, but actually it's also quite a monotonous task mm. in other ways. It's the same yeah. basic thing uh, all of the time. And they are legally not allowed to work more than two hours without taking mm. a 30-minute break because everybody says, actually, you can't sustain functional mm. performance. Um, we are doing you know, equally complex tasks. Um, sometimes we find them monotonous and boring, but we equally have to be able to respond to the unexpected quickly and reliably if we're going to be able to do the best for our patients. Mm. And if air traffic controllers can't work two hours without taking a break, why is it acceptable for us to work 12 hours? Yeah. And it's it's turning it around. It's you know it's it's educating the, the patients who are sitting in the ED waiting room, and saying to them, "We know you've been waiting four hours. We completely appreciate that. But actually, it's better for you that you're not seen by a member of staff mm. that has been on their feet for twelve hours without a break. If you wait an extra twenty thirty minutes, and the member of staff who comes to see you has actually had a chance to recuperate, recharge their batteries mm. a little bit, have a cup of tea, whatever." you're going to get better care. Mm. And yes, you wait slightly longer for it, but you're probably going to get better care and be out of here quicker mm. than if you're being treated by somebody who's sleep deprived. Which is a very different way of thinking and approaching yeah, it. absolutely. Yeah. So I think, again, I haven't quite got around to how to do this, but I think it's probably quite similar to um, uh, the approach to hand washing. Um, so again, clearly over the last 10, 20 years, we've had a very yeah. uh, specific drive about the importance of hand washing and we're all very aware of the reasons why. But one of the critical steps in that was actually not about educating doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals about the importance of hand washing. One of the key turning points in that was when the posters started appearing in the wards aimed at patients mm. saying, has Dr X just come to you from the other patient and they've not washed their hands? Feel free to challenge them mm. and tell them that you won't accept their care mm. until they've done something that reduces the risk of harm to you. And I think at some point we need to do that piece of work. We need to educate the general public that what they need, their best interest, is a member of staff functioning at their best. And sometimes it's better to wait a little bit longer for somebody who's going to deliver better okay. care than to be you know, seen quickly by somebody who is literally asleep on their feet. Mm. So thinking, if we sort of accept that and think about that, I guess there's two strands to how we manage that. There's, there's a personal level and there's also clearly a, uh, an HR and a managerial yeah. level. So if we think about the sort of personal level first, what advice would you give to people doing shift work to maximise their so the, 
slump. The boring bit, I'm afraid, is it's, it's, it's kind of <laughs> generic doctor advice. It's do less of the things you enjoy doing and more of the things you hate doing. Um, sleep is a, a, a basic fundamental thing. We're wired to sleep. Um, but we all get into habits oh. uh, which make sleep uh, less likely to be adequate. So we're all very used to rationalising why we're going to stay up and watch the latest episodes of The Defenders or whatever on Netflix uh, rather than going to bed, even though we know we should. Um, We all like coffee or beer or things that we enjoy, but actually things that are not very good for sleep. So a bit of it is about understanding all of the things which affect sleep, and that's to do with routine, it's to do with habits, it's to do with really simple things. If you need seven hours of sleep every night to get the right amount of sleep for you, then you need to have a bedtime and a wake time that gives you the chance to do that. If you regularly go to bed at midnight and wake up at six, but you know that you need seven hours of sleep mm. to get the proper benefit, then you need to sort that out. So I'll, as I said, a lot of what I do is about trying to persuade people to think about at least doing those kind of things. Um, again, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. If you are sleep deprived and we know that that affects your ability to function we wouldn't tolerate somebody who came to work having just had a couple of pints of beer Mm. I think fatigue is a much more complex way to think about it in that way and there are lots of things that means that many of them out with people's control Mm. that mean they may not get the right amount of sleep but if you are proactively making sure that you don't get enough sleep Mm. then I think you do have a responsibility as a doctor as a nurse to try and do something about that. Mm. So if the reason that you're sleep deprived all the time is you stay up every night until two in the morning, then actually I think you do have a professional responsibility to sort that out. The difficulty is is that sleep can be affected by lots of things. Mm. You could have a a sore knee, you could have two kids under the age of five who have disrupted your sleep, so it is more complicated than that. But that individual responsibility is definitely there. And a lot of that is just about doing simple things well and improving the things that you can improve. Um, and where you can't improve things, accepting that, that that may be the case. The the flip side, the systemic side, I think we need to be a lot better about acknowledging that what we are asking people to do, mm. so particularly night working, yeah. unphysiological, really basic, simple point, you're meant to be asleep. Um, so we should have systems that accept that. We should be supporting uh, people to work better, and that is making sure that people get the breaks that they're entitled to. So we should be getting them all the time anyway, but even more at night, it's even more important. We should be doing simple things. So for many people, taking short power naps, 15 to 20 minutes during a night shift, helps to improve their ability to function. Pilots do that. So planes have sleeping spaces, so pilots and crew can go and do that during the flight. So we should be providing spaces in hospitals for our staff to do that if they want to, partly because it's better for them, but also because it means they'll be providing better care. Um, we should structure our systems in a way that acknowledges the impact of night working in particular but, but long shift working in general um, and then try and mitigate the, the, the consequences of that um, fundamentally you know, so if I had the magic wand that we would all love to have I would put more people on shift at night mm. um, you know, I'd have more people to do the tasks um, than we currently do um, I would, you know, have a staffing model that meant people work nights less often, you know, uh, and do these kind of things. But we're never going to get that, sadly, mm-hmm. for a long time, I don't think. But I think there are lots of things that people can do to make it better. And I spend quite a lot of time talking to organisations and employers about those kind of things as well. And what about the sort of attitude of at night you're not paid to sleep, you're paid to work? Or 
in my day, we did Friday, 5 o'clock, till Monday, 9 o'clock in the morning. Never did me any harm. So... <laughs> The first bit, uh, the not pay to sleep bit, is sadly still very prevalent, um, even in hospitals. Yeah. And uh, I've got lots of examples, so I do a lot of talking about this in public. So I get lots of people sending me all the negative examples. You know, so at the extreme, you've got hospitals which uh, uh, you know, tell their portraying staff if they see a doctor sleeping on night shift or a nurse sleeping on night shift to take a picture and send it to somebody in the management office so they can be disciplined. Um, and that's a real example. It still amazes me that that's the case, but there you go. Um, But there is a very negative attitude and people get this uh, idea, yeah, you're not paid to sleep. Mm. I think we need to turn that around. I think one of the biggest travesties in healthcare is that nurses are not paid for for breaks at night. Because when you don't pay somebody for a break, you're saying that it's not valuable. Um, And I think the break, a rested nurse, is essential to good quality care. So when we don't pay nurses for breaks, we're saying that we don't think the break has value. Mm. Um, So I think we should turn that completely around. In some ways, I quite like the hospitals that have that kind of attitude, though, because if they're clear about it and they're quite brazen in saying that they, they do things like that, it actually is, is the work of a few minutes for me to say, well, you just don't understand mm. sleep physiology and here's the relevant sleep physiology. How are you possibly justified in doing what you're doing? And actually, it's quite easy to then break that down. What's much more difficult is when it's a very subversive is not quite the right word but it's a a much more subtle uh, attitude and that can be much more difficult to identify and break down but again I think a lot of the work that we do is about trying to do that you see it pop up in the papers every now and then you know so um, snowflake doctors refuse to work work, yeah which I think was a one I think that person was misquoted uh, apart from anything else but yeah, I think that, that ties in. in the sun, Doctor. Well, absolutely, <laughs> it must be true. Um, it ties into the, the second bit, which is in my day mm. we did this and it was all fine. Um, I think the in my day brigade often miss out the fact that yes, it was very busy and very intense doing what was done. And again, even when we work uh, in training uh, uh, programs, but it is a lot tougher now. Mm. Um, there, there are just more people coming through the system. We turn people over quicker, you know, bed stays go down, patient numbers go up. The workload intensity is much higher. And I think what people forget uh, about those rota patterns is that the people that talk about them are the people that survived them. Mm. And, and actually there was a lot of people who just did not cope and dropped out uh, in those days. And some of them did it by leaving medicine and some of them burned out mm. um, I was once told when I complained about having to work uh, a six-doctor uh, shift pattern with only five doctors uh, and made the mistake of complaining to the neonatal consultant about it, that this was clearly unfair. Uh, and we were dragged up, the, the SHOs on the rota, to the uh, old Victorian doctor's mess with wooden panels and etched initials. And she pointed out the initials of uh, one of her ex-colleagues. And she basically said... I did this job with him. There were two of us. We worked a one and two, and he killed himself. So you have it much better. And we're all kind of going, do you not think maybe the fact that he killed Killed himself himself. tells you something about the pressure that people are under when doing this? So I don't think that going back to the old way of working would work. The other thing that the old way of working um, misses out is that you are impaired. By the time you get to Mm. hour 22, you are impaired. And I think historically we were perhaps more tolerant of mistakes made in hospitals than we are now. Mm. And I think that, and again, it's difficult to to be absolute about this, but I think potentially the standard of care that Mm. we deliver in hospitals today is of a higher standard 
than was delivered mm. 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm. And we wouldn't tolerate no. mistakes that would have been tolerated or swept under the carpet now that occurred because doctors or nurses were tired. Mm. So I think attitudes towards lots of things have changed and it, it just isn't practical. It's not helpful that people bring that up, but it's, again, I think it's quite easy to challenge it. And thinking just finally then in terms of resources for, for people, that the one, you know, the thing that I, I regularly see and, and I say I look forward to in August is your Twitter feed, which always <laughs> has the, um, uh, the the sort of guide to sleep, which is just a superb thread. So, uh, so I, I would recommend that to anybody, but where else can people? Um, so we're, we're building lots of these resources. So for paediatricians, uh, the RCPCH website was revamped a few months ago and it now has a well-being section uh, in there, um, which I hope is something that we're going to continue oh. to develop um, over the next months and years. Um, so it has a section from me about sleep and shift work that we will be adding to and developing. We are currently in a discussion with the college. Um, so within the London Deanery, um, over the last four or five years, we have built teaching and training on this into ST1 induction. Oh. So every ST1 through the London Deanery in the last four years has had an hour of teaching on this uh, from me. And in parallel to that, we have gone out to as many of the hospitals and departments within the London Deanery to think about their attitudes oh. and challenge things like you're not paid to work at night. And we think that's going to make an improvement. What we would like to do now is make sure that that is being applied uh, in every deanery. So we're in discussions with the college about how we build that yeah. kind of teaching and that kind of attitude and how we support uh, our teams better uh, in doing that. So the RCPCH website will hopefully be a really useful resource for doing that. Um, the BMA have produced really nice uh, resources, so they very helpfully, uh, did the detailed literature search uh, and produce a really nice comprehensive review of all of the evidence behind mm. all this, which is very handy. Um, and they also have uh, recommendations and resources. And the other group of people that have been really proactive about this are the anaesthetic mm. colleges. And they produce some really nice resources that are available through the AAGBI website. Uh, uh, on their, if you Google AAGBI fatigue, it will come up. And they have lots of really practical resources to try and help doing it. The, the really important thing, I think, if you are working somewhere and you want to start to make things better about this, is not to set yourself impossible goals. And mm. um, If you are starting at one point and you want to get to the mythical, ideal end point, you're not going to do it in mm. one step. The, the way to do it is by picking one bit of this and trying to improve it and then building on it. And the bits that I often encourage people to think about, first of all, are the induction teaching. Yep. I think there are ways to build in induction teaching uh, into any department. So my Twitter feed has a, uh, a quick guide about how to do that pinned to the top of it. Um, and then thinking about department attitude to rest and breaks. Um, you want a department that is proactive about encouraging its staff to take rest and breaks and emphasising to every single member of staff within a department and a team that the care that you are delivering is compromised if you do not get regular rest and breaks. And that needs to be modelled. So that needs to be yeah. modelled by people in consultant roles, taking rest and breaks consistently, uh, and then supported uh, to do it. Um, so those are the two things that I tend to recommend to start with and then build everything from there. Yeah. And remembering you're not a superhero. Not a superhero, absolutely. Yeah. We spend far too much time. Um, and the difficulty is it feels great. You know, when you've done, you know, three 13-hour shifts in a row and you haven't had a break because the other doctor who was meant to be helping mm. you was off sick and you get through and everything's okay and everyone's like, that's amazing, you're brilliant, How, you know, you're outstanding, you're, you know, you're yeah. superhuman. And it feels great, but the problem is that happens quite a lot in the NHS. 
and we spend a lot of time telling people that they're superhuman and they think that they have to live up to that mm. standard you know if you know that your colleague last week managed to do those three shifts on their own and they didn't complain and everybody said how brilliant they were yeah. and then the next week the same thing happens and you're asked to do it you feel that you can't say, do you know what, I actually can't do this. Yeah. I, I, I'm just not physically built to do this. And you feel like you're the, the weak link if you can't go to those ex- extraordinary lengths. And because it happens so often, we have lost the perspective that it is, it is extraordinary what yeah. people are asked to do. And we need to emphasise that it is not the norm. Um, and our physiology is just as boringly normal as everybody else's, yeah. unfortunately. But We're not superhuman. Sadly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some of us think we might be. Yeah, but they're different. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And finally, so if people want to look for that pin tweet, what's the, the, the Twitter? At uh, Dr. Mike Farker, um, which is F-A-R-Q-U-H-A-R. Because um, nobody will spell that. Because nobody can spell my name. I probably should have a more Twitter friendly surname. <laughs> yes. I never thought about that. Okay. Um, but, yeah. Sleepy Mike. Yeah, yes, well, there we go. Mm, okay. I'll think about that. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. Much appreciated. Cheers.